Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We are so excited to have Bonnie Chow with All Roads Lead to Blood. Let's please give her a warm round of applause immediately. <laughs> and then before I sing her praises, I'd like to um, bring up Kenji Liu from the um, Kundiman um, organization, which is um, dedicated to addressing proactively the legacy we will leave for our future. And he's got some nice things to say before I have more nice things to say. Hi, uh, I'm just here to represent Kundiman, which is an Asian American organization. It's a national nonprofit dedicated to nurturing generations of writers and readers of Asian American literature. And um, I am co-chair along with Jean Ho of the Southern California Regional Group for Kundiman. And every year, every summer, we hold a uh, writer's retreat fellowship for Asian American writers. Uh, both in prose and in poetry. So if you're at all interested in applying and finding out more about stuff we do, uh, the retreats happen on the East Coast, but we have a lot of events uh, here on the West Coast. And uh, we have another event coming up in October, uh, which is a book release for Mia Ayumi Mahotra. And it's a, she's a fourth generation Japanese American and she has a poetry book that just came out uh, that's about four generations of Japanese American women. Uh, so that'll be, in October on the 13th, which is a Saturday. So if you're interested in finding out about our events or the retreat, please come talk to me or to Bonnie, who's also a Kundiman fellow, or to Jean. Uh, and I just want to say that I'm excited about this book because the first thing it mentions in here is boba. <laughs> and I live in, or I used to live in the San Gabriel Valley, and I still live very close to it. And just seeing the word boba in here just made me feel immediately at home with the book. So I'm excited to see what else uh, Bonnie brings up. So thanks, now I'll, I'll let um, Harry introduce Bonnie properly. So um, there's lots to say about the accomplished and award-winning Bonnie Chow. But um, I personally was most impressed by the fact that she is a dedicated bookseller at an indie in Brooklyn called Book Court. And um, I always like to brag, before he was Albert Einstein, oh no, no. <gasps> what is it? McNally Jackson. Pardon me, the internet lied. Um, I, I always like to brag, though, that uh, before he was Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein worked in the patent factory, and so do we. Um, <laughs> all right, I got a laugh. Um, okay, so uh, Bonnie Chow is um, also from Southern California. She holds an MFA from Columbia. Uh, she has run programs at 826 LA. She works for poets and writers as well. And how's that working out for you? Extraordinarily well. All Roads Lead to Blood has been praised as leaky, sexy, witty, masterful, wild, fantastical, unforgettable, sharp, messy, raw, real, remarkable, brilliant, strange, emotional, sexual, fresh, unflinching, haunting, unique, exquisitely written, and wonderful. Let's please give her a warm round of applause.
Thank you everyone for coming. I'm very excited to be reading here. Um, yeah, and just being here in Southern California. I don't know, I feel like I've done, kind of accumulated a bunch of readings in New York over the last number of years, but I was not really doing readings back when I was living here, so this is, this is a real treat. You guys are in for a real treat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, boba is a way better word than like, what, what do you call it when you stuff a bubble in bubble tea? Not, not right. Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to decide what to read. Um, something appropriate for Southern California and also for this audience. Uh, my parents are here. <laughs> um, thank you for being here. They're very supportive of my work. Yes, they have read my work and they've not disowned me yet. Um, so I'm gonna read a little bit, or I think some parts from a story near the end of the collection. It's titled A Golden State. And yeah, there's not really anything you need to know. The narrator is like sitting in the back seat of her parents' car while they're driving somewhere um, and kind of just reminiscing. Up in the front of the car, my parents begin arguing over the air conditioning. Right now, the car was making its way down Barranca or Culver, where a new row of ready-made storefronts and restaurants had popped up like movie lot facades. Top shops that form the generic nucleus of any city in the U.S. California Pizza Kitchen, the Cheesecake Factory, Kmart, Sprinkles, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Fleming Steakhouse, Barnes & Noble, a flashing multi-shoppertainment movieplex, Starbucks or Coffee Bean, Houston's. I think back to New York. These days, these days, those past tense days. I hadn't known that in a new city, on a new coast, that my body would be different would feel like somebody else's object, a horror movie alien. In the winter, in the locker room in a ceramic studio in the village, I was rolling up my shirt sleeves and could not recognize the pale forearms that appeared. They were not mine. In the summer, in a used bookstore near Union Square, I saw a book that reminded me of the golden boy. I tilted the book out of the bookshelf. It wasn't too hard to pull it out, the bookstore's foreign language poetry section was small. The book stood loosely. And yet, the book gave a crack when I flipped it open. A bug flew out and toured my face. I jerked my head back, fingers brushing instinctively in front of my eyes. Had it flown into my eye, gotten caught in my eyelashes? That would be a fear of mine. I quickly slid the book back into its place on the shelf. It all depends on whether or not you choose to believe in omens, whether or not you choose to assign meaning. From the front of the car, my parents pointed out that we were on the grapevine. 
They were referring to an incident from my past. Once, here, in the beating dry heat of late summer, I sat twisted around in the passenger side seat of my gold sedan, watching my boyfriend of seven months getting arrested through the dusty rear window. He was being slammed against the hood of the highway patrol car. He was being handcuffed. We were on the grapevine, this very same stretch of it in Bakersfield. We had been headed to Morrow Bay for a short camping trip. The officers claimed to have clocked him with a radar gun going 120 miles per hour. I ended up spending a night camped out on a bench in the waiting room of the Kern County Jail, waiting for him to be released. The back seat and trunk of my gold car, which was parked in the empty jail parking lot, was full of camping food and whiskey. I sat there on the bench that night thinking about the beef jerky in the car. The parking lot was empty, sand all around, ghosts everywhere. I smiled and said something unintelligible to my parents, something about how long ago it was when that had all happened. I could say these generic phrases all day long. I could talk about things that didn't matter, that weren't secrets for all time. Here in the Southland, I was more able to keep myself secret. Sometimes, during the day, I walked through the brush. I slipped my fingers into the chaparral, tips brushing the dry brittle tips, the tender thorns. The browns and brown greens coated my eyes, slicked them, licked them, affectionate tongues, rough and hot and damp. It suddenly felt like all my life I'd been needing to get back to this. The gray browns, the tan browns, the sand browns, beige browns of sharp rocks, scattered like hazards on sand. All these dry bits on one plane, a flat photograph of desiccation. But that was the trick. These things were alive. Their camouflaged lives soothed me in a way that the alien green abundance of the deciduous woods back around New York could not dare touch. I'd been living in a quasi-converted loft in Bushwick in those years. In the mornings, I would walk through the quiet living room space into the bathroom. The bathroom sink had been not draining well for at least half a year. There was a lot of gunk in there, a lot of saliva and old rotting food bits and mucus and phlegm and soap residue and bits and pieces of hair and dead skin flakes and bugs. And it was all coagulated into a very dank, foul, almost edible stench, <laughs> gooily coating the pipes, gooily accumulating layer upon bumpy layer. As a result, there were tiny flies, gnats, that hovered around the openings of the sink. I would walk back to my bedroom. I look back upon that time as if it were a long time ago, and I think to myself, ah, yes, those years in Bushwick. That had been the era of the golden boy. Once when I came home, the golden boy had hung my curtains up in my room. He had installed the curtain rod attachments and placed the curtain rod in its place and threaded the curtains onto the rod. The curtains billowed in like storybook sails. They were relentless. I called him to ask about the curtains. I thought it would be a nice gesture, he said. I said, thank you and asked him what he thought about the word gesture. 
I was just trying to see if, like me, he saw something futile in the word gesture. Gestures were usually faint shadows of real things. The small thing you did or showed or gave because you were unable to do or show or give the actual real big important thing. Instead of calling me ungrateful, which I'd already done to myself in my head, he was quiet. Your roommate let me in, he said. Your roommate let me in, a strange man with pain on his face, holding an electric drill. You're not a strange man, I said. And I thought I would accompany the statement with a laugh, but found that in the saying of it, it had transformed in my head from something humorous to something sobering and painful. We soon moved into a new apartment together. I would stand in the doorway of the bedroom, which was right off the kitchen, watching him cook lunch, which would go into small glass containers that he settled into the bottom of his backpack. Other things in the backpack included a notebook, a book, pen, sometimes articles of clothing or accessories, sometimes a power drill or measuring tape, an extra pair of pants or long underwear, a six pack of cold beers. He might be cooking rice and beans in a camping pot. He had gotten it in his head that for the sake of potential apocalypse or just for camping, to build up a thorough camping equipment setup for every new household item we needed, he would buy the camping version instead. Always be ready to live off of survival mode type accoutrement. Instead of a bed, why not buy a sleeping bag? Instead of a room, why not just have tents, I'd ask, trying to be very precisely one half funny, one half air of your way serious. Very quickly, all of our kitchen equipment became the camping version of things. All of our lamps were hand-wound flashlights. We kept a tub of sand by the kitchen sink and scrubbed our camping pots and pans and tin mugs with a handful of sand and a sponge. There was one last time and one last guy that I think about that happened after that last scene with the golden boy and before I left New York. Um, entrance stairs before following this other guy down I took a breath even then I tricked myself into believing that the night still could end in a multitude of ways I still believed that perhaps I would decide not to have sex with him I took in his apartment I took in the hallways the placemats the posters on the wall the lights strung up these were all his roommates I sat on a stool while he made tacos he was not from anywhere where anyone ate tacos or made good tacos. I could tell that his tacos were going to be subpar, but I, I appreciated this unassuming guy making tacos for me in the middle of the night. I looked at his movies. Wow, I said, you have a lot of romantic dramas. <laughs> yeah, he said. He took me to his room. He led me by the hand. I did not like that he did this, or did not like the feeling of this. I wished it were someone else leading me by the hand. He kissed me, 
He was very tall, had very wavy hair. His lips were dry and thin, and I put an end to the kiss. He took his glasses off and looked very earnest. I shook my head at him. I made a noise of drunken frustration. I am so turned on by you, he whispered, while his cock was deep inside of me. Or his cock was wearing a condom and then wearing me. I hung on by a thread. I hung on by my very fingertips. I was left hanging like an empty coat on a coat rack hook, on the coat rack hook of his penis. <laughs> I tried to make it funny so that I could put off berating myself. He was exceedingly nice. I got my period on the trip to the bathroom, a surprise one day early. He pulled my tampon out, put it on a napkin, lay a towel down on the bed. Soft hair, he said mouth breathing lightly over my hair. Soft cheeks, he said, mouth on my cheek. Soft lips, he said, mouth on my mouth. I had never in my life done this thing, where I stayed over solely because I was too tired, where I stayed over even though the concept of it made me feel sick. But I did it then. I tried to remind myself to be calm, to step back, take a step back, be more casual, be less intense. Think, feel, react less intensely. This was what maybe I'd wanted or needed to do all my life. Be and then be less. The advice of strategy when packing for travels. Pack and then take out half of what you packed. <laughs> that should prove sufficient. That shall lighten your load. Strawberry fields whizzing by outside. My parents were talking now about the California condor. I was trying to fall asleep. This could be 1987 again, I'm thinking, dreaming, sitting in the back seat of my parents' car, a lot of concerned talk about the condor. My dad tells me he heard that my reckless driving ex-boyfriend from 10 years ago recently moved to London. Does that mean anything to me? No. <laughs> writing and also if 
it's like a paragraph of that, and then maybe the next line will be, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be working on this story, and I'll just write a paragraph of the story, and then I'll write something else, or, you know, I just write whatever I feel like writing, basically, in this rule book. And then after a certain number of months, usually, I, like, go through just all these old Google Docs, and I, like, pick out things. Um, it's kind of a little bit of a collaging, cut-up process, um, and certain, I don't know, certain things kind of take shape as I'm reading through maybe months' worth of documents, um, and I'm like, oh, it looks like there's a story, or I was writing a lot about this, or maybe there was actually like a specific story I was working on, and I'll kind of pull pieces from there. Um, and it's a very it's a very instinctive process, which is maybe why I, I feel guilty about that a lot. Um, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so these are kind of there are sixteen stories in here, and it's pretty much all of the short stories I wrote between. 2011 and 2016 um, and I had kind of I don't know wasn't feeling productive I was like I don't know what I'm doing I'm like submitting out just separate stories and then in order to feel productive I just like was like oh this is a collection all of the stories together <laughs> um, and kind of started sending them out to some small presses and then when I found out so I like won this small press contest I was like uh oh you know like I just kind of threw that together um, but I spent a lot of time kind of after that thinking about how to because I, I mean when I first called it a manuscript it was I'd done kind of a very minimal amount of ordering um, so I had time in the last year to think more in depth, I guess, about, you know, especially like what I wanted in the beginning, what I wanted in the end, the tone of the stories, the kind of, some of them are a bit like um, more fantastic or more kind of in one genre or another. Um, so it was, it was also actually a very instinctive process, um, but I tried to think about Specifically, and I um, kind of talked to a little writing group that I have a lot um, about the stories at the very beginning and at the very end, and how I saw them all working together kind of as a progression. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are, I think there were um, themes like exploring ideas that were more related to coming of age, for instance, closer to the beginning. Um, and the kind of inserting very intermittently throughout um, the ones that were a little bit more fantastic or mythological. Um, I very much wanted those pieces to be kind of consistently placed throughout um, because the book to me and the stories 
are about like self mythologizing. Um, or I wanted that was my intention. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully some of that. Like I'm trying to write like 
written like a couple essays, but I really do no idea how the novel thing works. I have like a Google Doc right now of like 150 pages, and the font I just made the font really small, so I don't have to scroll as much. <laughs> That's my strategy so far. <laughs> Someone, someone, something to work with. 
um, something that maybe changes upon multiple readings or is not immediately transparent um, or is a little bit um, elliptical or obfuscated or something like that. Is this Yeah, I think in many ways it is. Yeah. Um, I think allowing for ambiguity is a is maybe an act of generosity. Yeah. about this because I just yeah, I just posted this. Um, an old writing professor of mine at UCLA, David Wong Louie, he just passed away maybe like a week ago. Um, and he, I mean, there was definitely a long, I mean, I guess it wasn't that long when I was younger. The stories I was writing, I, I don't think I was very critical of myself about it, but I do know that I kind of wrote like a very neutral, like a new, like a, some sort of like racially neutral character. Like that was like a thing, you know? Um, or I kind of, yeah, danced around that. Um, and there was a story I wrote in his workshop where I was like, I don't even remember what it was, but he made a comment and he was like, oh, this seems like maybe this character is Asian, like <laughs> maybe, you know? And I was like, oh, I guess maybe you're right, you know? Um, but I didn't really know how to like deal with that. And it wasn't something, I mean, it wasn't, you know, in the literature I was reading, I didn't really know how to do that, I didn't really want to do that. Um, and so it wasn't until I think much later actually, um, like in, I don't know, the last like eight years that I started very consciously writing about being Asian American. Um, and that's like a big part in many of the stories in this collection. Um, but I think that was like, I don't know, I guess that was a thing I had to go through that many people do. Um, but it's been amazing. I mean, with, you know, Kumiman, for example, um, I don't know. I think I didn't really realize that I was just like doing, writing my shit like by myself. And they're actually, I mean, that's been really helpful in that sense, um, kind of finding all these other writers, you know, especially, and I don't know, like growing up in Irvine, you know, I was like, I didn't know any other, I didn't know any writers, much less like Asian writers, you know.
why didn't I feel like I knew any writers? Um, well, because, I mean, I, I didn't. Um, oh, um, I don't, I mean, I think, There's a lot I could say about Irvine. I mean, there are clearly, there definitely are writers in Irvine. UC Irvine, right, has like an amazing MFA program. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I maybe, you know, had a friend in elementary or high school that here and there who like also maybe liked to write, but I, like no one's parents were writers. Um, and that was the extent of my, you know, kind of my world, like it was like my family, my friends, and my friends, you know, like parents. Um, and I mean, that just wasn't what I was exposed to. I think there are, I think there are writers <laughs> in Irvine, um, but I didn't know of any, you know, I didn't know of um, people who were artists, really, that was kind of, anathema to me, like to, to imagine that that might be something I would do for, I don't know, a living, although obviously I don't do that for a living, <laughs> no sort of living, um, but yeah, to make that like the big thing of my life was like, I don't know, it's something I kind of dreamed about, but it kind of, you know, it's like, Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't know, like, many of you are from, or, or some of you are from Irvine. Uh, there's an Irvine contingent here. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's not, it's not some place that people are immediately, would immediately, would immediately spring to mind as, you know, as very inspiring to create art. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are like definitely artist communities in Orange County and, you know, like, I don't know, Laguna Beach has like many artists. Um, Santa Ana has a lot of artists. I don't know, Irvine, I don't know. I don't know, it's very new. It's like the ultimate planned community. Um, it's very, it's very like well, structured and organized, um, <laughs> safe, it's very safe. Yeah, right, um, and it's quite, yeah, um, Irvine has changed a lot, and <laughs> so I'm like really kind of like digging here, trying to think of like why and you know how, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've been to Irvine. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, right, so it doesn't, I don't know if it, it, it's not, like, completely shocking to me, you know, now, having lived in many other places like that, I didn't know artists in Irvine growing up, you know, it, like, makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love working in a bookstore. And it's been, I mean, my coworkers have been great. You know, they like put my books out. <laughs> and they're, they're very proud. Um, but I don't know. I think it's, I definitely appreciate kind of all of the work that goes into how a book even like gets into a bookseller's hands and that like what makes a bookseller decide to like recommend a book. Um, but I do kind of feel like I'm maybe too involved in books. Um, like my day job is like all books, books, and then some days I work at the bookstore, it's like books and books, and then a lot of my friends are writers, it's like books, and <laughs> I mean, it's like awesome, but also um, I'm like, that's not my whole life. It is kind of my whole life, but I don't know, maybe too much of my life. Right. Um, so I think we're done here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.